0: quarantine It's a word that we've been hearing a lot more recently, and this past week I learned that it comes from an Italian phrase, Quaranta Giorni, which means 40 days. It refers to a Venetian policy first enforced in the 14th century of keeping ships from plague-stricken countries waiting off its port for 40 days to assure no latent cases were aboard. So, you would keep the ship in the water for those 40 days just waiting to see if anyone came down with something before you let it dock. And though this practice dates back to the 14th century, we've actually seen some quarantined ships in the headlines just these past couple of weeks. And here in Washington, we're experiencing our own kind of quarantine with events canceled and these various social distancing measures in place. But beyond all of this, the church is also in the midst of a kind of season of quarantine. I think that's actually a really good description of Lent. It's a 40-day period of taking stock of ourselves. and in a way distancing ourselves in the wilderness to see if any bad symptoms pop up. This is exactly the kind of thing that happens out in the wilderness. If you remember Anthony the Great, one of the first Christian monks who we talked about a few weeks ago, he went out in the wilderness to devote himself to prayer, but the story goes He ended up spending a good bit of his time wrestling with demons. Even when Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, the devil showed up to tempt him, right? But Jesus overcame his trial. You and I know that if it were one of us, we would have failed miserably. You see, in our 40-day quarantine, Lent, we're bound to start showing some bad symptoms after a while. Because we are sick with sin. And that's exactly what we see in the passage we're looking at today. So, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 11. Alright? Numbers chapter 11 is what we're looking at today. And here's just a quick review of where we've been the last few weeks. The book of Numbers started with Israel taking stock of themselves. when they took a census and then set up their camp with the tabernacle, the very presence of God at their center. And then last week, we got to chapter 9, and we saw them setting out into the wilderness where they faithfully followed the movement of God. Right? When the cloud lifted up, the people set out. And when the cloud settled down, the people would camp. This was their chant as they made their way through the wilderness. God acts, and the people respond. Well, we've got then chapter 10, one whole chapter of faithful wilderness journeying, and then chapter 11, and the symptoms start to pop up. The symptoms start to show. The people begin complaining, doubting God, and ultimately looking back to the supposedly good old days of Egypt. So, let's read a few portions from Numbers chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to skip around a little bit. So Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire abated. So that place was called Taberah, which means burning. Because of the fire, the Lord burned against them. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of gum resin. The people went around and gathered it, ground it in mills or beat it in mortars, and then boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell in the camp in the night, the manna would fall with it. I'll jump down to verse 18. It goes on, God responds to this situation, and he tells Moses, Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wailed in the hearing of the Lord, saying, If only we had meat to eat, surely it was better for us in Egypt." Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not only one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave? And look down to verse 31. Then a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quails from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side. All around the camp, about two cubits deep on the ground. So the people worked all day and night, and all the next day, gathering the quails. The least anyone gathered was ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So that place was called Kibrath-Hatava, because they were buried, the people who had the craving. From Kibroth hatava the people journeyed to Hazaroth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of your people in the wilderness and for journeying in the wilderness with them and with us. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So last week when we were together we identified this really important pattern in life. Do you remember it? God acts and we respond. And we said that this is the foundation of good theology, of authentic worship and of, of our life on mission as the church everything we do is a response to something that God is already doing. God acts, we respond. We see that in the creation story where God speaks and life bursts into existence. We saw that last week as the cloud moved and the people followed. And we even see a glimpse of it in the beginning of our passage where God provides manna so that the people can eat in the wilderness. All of this As a picture of grace, God acts, the people respond. This is the essential pattern of grace. But then, things start breaking down. Rather than eating the manna and following God, the people begin grumbling and complaining and looking back to Egypt. And then God tells Moses what he's going to do and then he does it. And what we see here is a new pattern developed. Instead of God acting and the people responding, we now see the people acting and God responding. And this is the essential pattern of sin. The people act and they're complaining, and God responds in judgment. When we look at these two patterns, we can see that the sin is a reversal of grace. The pattern of sin is a reversal of the pattern of grace. Sin reverses that. Grace is that that fundamental pattern. God acts, and the people respond. But sin is the distorted pattern. People act, and God responds. So like last week, I want to take a moment to consider each of these parts of this distorted pattern of sin. So first, the people act. The people act in sin. Now what is sin? Because I want to dig a little bit deeper into this, because I think that we have often, uh, well, we've often thought about sin, though not entirely wrong is at best only half true. You see, we usually think of sin as individual immorality. Right? Sin is individual immorality. Sin is a person doing something wrong. Now, sin is that. But if that's all we think about sin, we're missing a lot of the picture. Sin is quite a lot more than that. You see, sin is not primarily individual. And and we see that in the very first verse of this passage. Look back at verse 1. It says, now when the people complain. You see, it's not an individual person, but rather the people who sin. And we see this again down in verse 4. It says, the rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again. It's not an individual here. It's this subset called the rabble, who then affect the whole community of the Israelites. You see, sin is less like individual wrongdoing and more like a communal illness. It's like a virus. The reason we're not meeting in person today is because viruses spread. And that's what sin does. It affects and infects whole communities. Sin is not so much about whether or not an individual is doing right or wrong, but rather whether a whole society is functioning justly. Sin has less to do with law-keeping and more to do with neighbor-loving. And as soon as we see this bigger picture of sin, it also gives us a bigger picture of salvation. Salvation is not so much about me going to heaven someday, but rather about us becoming a community of people faithfully living God's kingdom. And that leads us to the second thing that we see about sin here. You know, I said we've, we've tended to see it as individual immorality. Well, we've already seen it's not primarily individual. And I want to say also, I don't think it's primarily about morality either. Now, now again, sin does include immorality. But that is not the whole picture. And that's not what we see here in Numbers 11. You see, there's nothing particularly immoral about wanting to eat meat, right? There's nothing particularly immoral about wanting cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic, right? You see, sin is not ultimately about morality and immorality, right and wrong. Rather, it's ultimately about faithfulness and faithlessness, it's about trusting God. Their sin is not in their desire to have some fresh and hearty food, but rather in their lack of trust in God. Instead of trusting God to lead them into the abundant land flowing with milk and honey, they begin looking back to Egypt turning away from the promise of God toward the past of Egypt. Instead of trusting God, they look back. God himself said in verse 18 and 19 and so on that he says this because they have rejected the Lord who is among them. Right? It's not primarily about morality and immorality. It's about trusting God. So this is sin, far beyond individual immorality. It is a community's failure to trust God. Now, does this include individuals? Yes, individuals are part of community. Does it include morality and and immorality? Yes, immoral actions, I think, are rooted in a lack of of trust in God. So sin does include individual immorality, but it goes far beyond that. And when we see the bigger picture of what sin is, we can begin to see the bigger picture of what salvation is. It's a community that's bound together by the faithfulness of God. But here, in Numbers 11... We see a community that's that's falling apart, a community that has failed to trust God, that, that has rejected God, a community that has doubted his promise and looked back to Egypt. So that's the first part of this pattern of reversal. Instead of the gracious pattern where God acts and the people respond, the pattern of sin starts with people acting. Someone ask, how does God respond? We might think, well God just gets angry and destroys everyone. But that's not really what we see in the story. Now don't get me wrong, God does get angry. And there is some destruction. But the wrath of God, I think is far more subtle than that. What does God do? Well look back to verse 18. God says to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wailed in the hearing of the Lord, saying, if only we had meat to eat, surely it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. So God gives them meat, and he gives them a lot of meat. Right, Verse 19 goes on, You shall eat not only one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Ugh, right? You see, this is the judgment of God. Not calling them out and punishing them, but rather, giving them exactly what they asked for. They had a strong craving for meat, so God gave them meat and he gave them a lot of it. And the people gathered and gathered and ate and ate until they literally gorged themselves to death. So in verse 34, it says that they named that part of the wilderness Kibrath Hatah, which means graves of craving. I wonder if Paul Had this story in mind when he was reflecting on human sin and God's judgment in Romans 1, verse 24, where he wrote, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. You see, the wrath of God is to give us exactly what our sinful hearts want. God's wrath is to give us exactly what we want, and like the Israelites in the desert, give us over to our cravings that lead to death, that lead to Kibrath HaTaba, the graves of craving. So if this is the judgment of God that we see here, well, what does his grace look like? Well, he has to reverse this pattern again, right? Right? Rather than giving us over to our deadly cravings, God needs to intervene. Grace looks like interrupting this pattern of sin, interrupting our own tendencies. Grace looks like intervention. And that's exactly what he does in Jesus. Rather than letting us look back toward the land of Egypt, Jesus comes with the word. Repent, which literally means to turn. He's calling us to turn away from Egypt and back toward God, away from sin and back toward grace. Instead of filling our hands with whatever we crave, he proclaims the kingdom is at hand. Instead of letting us meet our end in our own graves of craving, He went to the grave for us. And just like he overcame temptation in the wilderness, he overcame death in the grave. And this is the good news. This is the gospel, right? The gospel is what reverses the pattern of sin and restores that pattern of grace. God acts, we respond. Jesus is calling. So, will we answer? So, this is my challenge to you this week. We are continuing our wilderness journey, and with the current state of things, it feels a little bit more like a wilderness journey, right? We've taken stock, just like the Israelites did. We've set out, just like the Israelites did. And sooner or later, I think we will be tempted to look back just like the Israelites were. And so here's the challenge this week. Face your sin. Instead of falling back into it, heed Jesus' words. Repent and take hold of the kingdom. This week, as we continue our booklets of daily readings and reflections, we're invited to some prayers of confession. We're invited to face our sin and call it what it is and turn back to Jesus. I think as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us to heal us from this sickness in our souls and to draw us into his kingdom. As we confess, may the pattern of sin be reversed. And may we all find the abundance of his grace. May it be so.